This is a special series of the Theology Matters podcast focused on theology and the coronavirus pandemic. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and in the coming weeks, we'll be providing conversations with theologians and other scholars who are reflecting from their own disciplinary backgrounds on this global health crisis. On the podcast today is Andrew Davison, who is Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge. As always, we welcome your questions and comments by email at editor at ctinquiry.org. If you like what you hear, share this podcast with others and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for joining the conversation. So I'm here with Andrew Davison, who is the Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences. Welcome to the Theology Matters podcast, Andrew. This is a special series we're doing uh, on the podcast, touching base with CTI scholars during this pandemic to see how their work is being influenced, their research trajectories are changing in the wake of this, and even how their teaching is being influenced. Andrew, it's amazing that it's already been three years since you were at CTI in 2016-17 in our program on the societal implications of astrobiology. Maybe speak a bit about the the work you were doing at CTI and the work you've been doing since then. Well, they really were such fantastically happy and productive months. I was very grateful to be with you and such a wonderful group of members at that particular time. Well, since then, I have been trying to finish the book, which is a survey of Christian theology from the perspective of if you open the newspaper tomorrow and there was evidence of life elsewhere in the universe, what difference would it make? So it's a bit like a small systematic theology looking at that very specific question. So I'm trawling through all the big themes, creation, redemption, incarnation, sin, the life of the world to come. The book is almost finished and I hope that by the middle of the summer it'll be off to the publishers. I've done a few things on the side coming out of that. So a paper looking at the different things that people think they're doing when they talk about whether there will be more than one incarnation. So I noticed that people were talking about really quite different questions. If there's life elsewhere in the universe, would the incarnation happen more than once? Some people were talking about whether it was necessary. Some people were talking about whether it was possible. I tried to retrieve a category from scholastic thought, which is what would it mean for it to be suitable, which I think is an even better category than either necessity or possibility. So I've done that. And then there's a book that CTI is editing on what it means for life to be a planetary phenomenon, a whole planet phenomenon, which I've been pleased to finish over a recent sabbatical. And I hope that's in your inbox. It is indeed. Beyond that, I've I've been branching out in a few directions. I've been thinking about mutualism in biology. So what does it mean to supplement our picture of creatures red in tooth and claw and everything being about competition with this other perspective which seems to me a real revolution in biology of the last few decades to see how creatures are mutually implicated in the flourishing one with another and I think that's really important for an expansion of our understanding of biology and that theologians have not really taken that on board as much as they have and the danger is then that we're responding to a picture of biology or evolution that's 30 or 40 years out of date and so I've edited an edition of a journal which is coming out any day now encouraging theologians to think about that I've been writing some encyclopedia articles and and, and dictionary articles and then the, a new a new project has been along I suppose along the lines of the mutualism and biology has been to think about developments in evolutionary thought of the last couple of decades so whereas 20 years ago 
people would probably have thought you could write the basic picture of evolution down on the back of a envelope, maybe even on the back of a postage stamp. Now we have a sense that it's much more complicated. Creatures don't just be shaped by their environment, but they shape them. What a particular set of genes means is not just determined in advance, but creature, individual creatures respond very much to their environments. There are whole new senses of how inheritance works, epigenetics, but also handing on um, the, the, the homes and environments that creatures pass on to their um, progeny. So really much expanded sense of what inheritance means. Some of this is gathered together sometimes called the extended evolutionary synthesis. And as part of that sense that theologians, um, they don't need to be swayed by every wind and whim of exactly what a scientist might be saying at a particular time. But as the center of gravity shifts and as areas you know, break open, and I think it's really important for theologians who are engaging with science to be looking at what's of the moment, um, especially of the moment, but now really pretty well established, rather than dealing with some of the things that one might still read in textbooks from a few decades ago. So given your... Oh, and of course, in all of that, a big book. Um, yeah, 160,000 words on participation in God, which is a theme that uh, is really central to my own thinking and to many of my closest colleagues, uh, which started out, it's going to be a 40,000 word brief introduction because students were always saying to me, Andrew, what should I read about participation? The met metaphysics of it, it's cons consequences for doctrine, by which I mean everything being a kind of um, partaking from God. What does it mean for God to be the origin and the source of absolutely everything about everything, except for evil, which is a kind of occlusion of that reception. Um, and so I, I, I thought, well, there are some pretty good high level research papers and things, but there isn't really an introduction that would just lay it out in a sort of 101 way, as Americans say. So I had a go at writing a, a short introduction and then it grew into a bit of a monster. Uh, and that came out last year. And I'm, yeah, I think I can go to my grave saying I've, I've written the book that's my contribution to Christian theology. Anything else is a bonus now. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with it. How has the reception of the book been? It came out in 2019. It did. Uh, well, it sold out in two months, which is uh, pretty good. Um, and it's a bit too early for reviews in journals, but I've heard lots of nice emails. And it's uh, been taken up by the American Academy of Religion Systematics Strand. Hmm. I hope that, that meeting goes ahead, um, but I'm sure it will go ahead in some, in some form. So participation is going to be a big theme uh, at that conference in systematic theology and there's going to be a panel on the book so um yeah i think it's making a splash Congratulations. i saw a review of it in church Please times so as someone a theologian who's very sort of knowledgeable in biology how are you thinking specifically about this pandemic and is it influencing your research is it the kind of thing that you've already been thinking about quite a bit and how is it changing what you're doing now well i think i'll start if you don't mind with that question of how it's changing what i do because I think for most of us, if we were not being grandiose or romantic about it, the real impact of this pandemic is just in day-to-day -day life and practices. Mm -hmm. And I think there are very important themes for theological attention that come out, to it, out of it. But really, it's the day-to-day -day shape of what it means to be a teacher or a researcher or a writer that has been most effective. Well, I think I can um, honestly and unfeignedly uh, say that CTI has set me up for being able to do pretty well in this environment. And I feel like I'm flourishing really, which I realize I'm very fortunate because there are many people who are on the very rough end of this. And by that, I mean that I carried on supervising PhD students whilst I was 
with you. Maybe I kept that quiet, but it didn't take up that much time. And um, so I did all that by Skype or FaceTime or whatever. So I really got into the run those nine months in Princeton of maybe once every other week teaching this way. And so I feel like I'm in, in the stride and now it's just that everything is done by that, done, done in that way. So all my PhD students and as of this week, because term has reconvened, uh, what undergraduate teaching there is to be done will be done remotely. So Cambridge is, is carrying on, but students perhaps for the first time ever aren't in residence and we're doing everything remotely and I would say that the technology is just about ready there are several platforms that are really good and, and stable and quite innovative for especially group um, group conversations and all of our admin and faculty meetings and college meetings um, are happening that way uh, I think where the hurdle would have been was over access to books and uh, journals would, I think, for us, a bit, you know, and I realise I'm at a wealthy university, uh, sorted out a few years ago, we have pretty perfect access to journals. But I've been really impressed by the labours, definitely of the librarians here, but also of publishers who I think have really stepped up and have massively expanded the range of ebooks that are available. So I was worried about what it would mean for students to be, just, just not to have access to libraries. But the, the way in which they can consult books online, I think is really impressive. Uh, but it's a strain for everyone, and especially if if students are at home and they are perhaps have childcare responsibilities, if their parents are key workers, that sort of thing. I don't belittle or underestimate the, uh, the challenges, but I think there's been a lot of creativity and just goodwill all around. The university has come up with alternative examination procedures and I know that it'll be challenging this term, but I'm really buoyed up by the sense of goodwill and cooperation there. In terms of research, I found that writing, writing small projects has been pretty easy at home, but there's something about the mental space for bringing a big project like the book I'm supposed to be writing coming out of my CTI work for finishing off that's quite difficult at, at home to get one's mind around a, a really big thing. I have been able to get into college um, once, maybe once a fortnight, I'm Dean of Chapel there and that occasionally requires me to be in. And so I really appreciate being able to get into my own study and, and change books, books there. And in terms of writing, there has been lots of requests, really, I mean, great requests, more than I can respond to really, for occasional theological writing about the pandemic. Um, so the Church Times asked me to write something about what it means to carry on celebrating the Eucharist, which is this sacrament of the body when of body of christ when we're dispersed and, and doors are closed i've written a bit for the college newsletter church times has got a series about basically what's inspiring and keeping people going uh, i've just written a, a column for that there's a really uh, interesting project to tr try and help churches keep connected to their localities and the needs of the localities which i think actually they're probably doing a really good job of but this uh, new initiative and i'm writing a blog posts for them so there are loads of opportunities for responding in a, a piecemeal sort of way the danger is one could do that all the time and sometimes have to say no before we started recording you were talking about how you've seen a kind of change even in your neighborhood during this time of pandemic yeah well that's a really good point and, and so yes there's the questions about the themes that we think about and we'll come on to some of those and then there's the business of what does it mean to be a teacher or a writer or a researcher but actually i think we're all being challenged what does it mean to be a human being or a christian or a muslim or you know, whatever our perspective is i think there's a wonderful address from the pope 
uh, I think the Pope and the Queen have come out of this very well, and we'll talk about that later on, um, in which she said, we shouldn't think about this as God's judgment upon us, but it is a time of judgment, a time, that's to say, of discernment. Hmm. Uh, I, really, I, I ought to do this, and I think I'd encourage people to do it, to kind of keep a journal hmm. of, of what is, what's live and important. What do we feel at the moment is be, when things are stripped away, what emerges as being of, of importance. I know sometimes when people are having difficult times, perhaps with mental health, you encourage people to think about and write about what it's like in the good times so they can reflect upon that in the bad times. And that's a good practice. I almost think in this situation, we should be doing the opposite as well and think about actually what is revealed to be important in these bad times that to help us to keep connected to that when hopefully that will be relaxed. And I think we could so easily fall into a kind of sleepwalking uh, old old way of being. So that, that gets me back to the question of, of neighbourhood. So just what does it mean to be a human being, in my case, a Christian, um, a neighbour? I've lived in this house for six, almost six years. And I've, I think I've talked to more people, had more interactions in the last six months and felt, sorry, sorry, six weeks and felt more part of it than in the six months beforehand. Uh, but paradoxically, even in this time of lockdowns, because there's a, a WhatsApp group got going and people were leafleted in the street to say, if you are in need, if you need some shopping, if you need um, to, someone to go to the pharmacy or drugstore, um, then just uh, call, call this number. And so I've had all these interactions with people, both helpers and uh, people in need, uh, some of it over WhatsApp, some of it face to face with the people who, who could do with a bit of help. Uh, and I feel just so much more connected to my street that I have done since I moved in here. And I wonder whether something as local as the street has received very much theological attention. And that might be something I, not, not for me to do, but for people who work on theology and geography and community and public theology. How's that been for you? Yeah, I've had the same experience in our neighborhood in the sense of going on, on walks. Of course, we try to do social distancing. So at the at, on one hand, we're sort of avoiding people and they're avoiding us trying to stay, you know, six feet, but maybe even more like 20 feet away, but more waving going on, I would say. Than yeah. Before. Yeah. That's, and smiles. Yeah. More smiling and waving and looking people in the eyes than before. So whereas before you might be walking along, even a lot of people looking at their phones, looking down, sort of not yes, in yes. the present. Instead, they're looking at one another, waving, saying, you know, saying hello. Um, there's a warmth there. Of course, that is a Princeton problem. Everywhere else in America, people wave and smile and say hello anyway. It's, uh... <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And I think uh, then connected to that neighborhood question, one of your inquiries coming up in this series on public theology is on the built environment. That's, exactly. that's right, isn't it? Coming Religion up and the built environment um, for this coming Religion year. and the built environment. And I think that the religious, theological, but basically ethical human significance of the built environment is being underlined to us. There was a Catholic priest in the 19th century in France, I think, who said that of all the human endeavours, architecture has the slowest but most important impact upon the human soul. Mm. And I think we're seeing that at the moment, and not even particularly slowly. So I'm aware that I've got spare room which is my study and sort of makeshift recording studio at the moment uh, and I've got a garden which has been absolute godsend to me and there are amenities and I'm, I'm very happy but even in my own country there are a lot of people living in houses in multiple occupancy 
and there are stories of whole families living in whole in, in a single room and what that must be like when we're under lockdown and we're not supposed to be out of the house for more than an hour a day I, I just can't imagine um, so I hope we come out of this thinking that the built environment is a top priority for us as in, individuals as faith traditions and um, and, and for public discussion. Maybe circle back, you mentioned the, the Pope and the Queen have both come out in very important ways. You also were talking before we started recording about Rowan Williams and maybe speak about even the three of those and what you've kind of garnered from their public uh, statements. Yeah, well, I hope that um, one of my godchildren won't mind me saying, but I, I spent a period in Rome when I was training for ordination, sort of representing the Church of England for five months I think and I sent a postcard around a change of address postcard to people and um, so to this particular family uh, I sent it and it had the Pope meeting the Queen because I thought that was quite a nice Anglican Roman Catholic uh, thing so this was put on his on his cot or crib or creche uh, and it's said that um, some of his first words were Pope and Queen because uh, it was this, this postcard was pointed out to him um, mm. anyway I think they have I think the, the Pope has just been fantastic but uh, there's there's something about his experience of working and living among people who are really suffering that means that his 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 sermons and his tweets, which I follow in try I try to follow the Pope's tweets in several languages. It's good, and and he is such uh, I think you know an under underrated figure in terms of his theology. He's very well seeped in theology, uh, but he it doesn't. It's not, it's not there at the front, it's not on the surface. And I think that's a very human way of communicating. And then just the, some of the, the, just the images like of, a, of an old man who after all has, I think only got one lung. So this is a really mm. alive thing for, well, it is for all of us, but he's a very vulnerable person. There in St. Peter's Square, uh, addressing and blessing the world. I, I thought that was very um, potent. That actually what we need is, is, is the symbolism of, religion not 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 mere symbolism but it's it's these sorts of um in the best sense performative and symbolic gestures that really speak and then the queen has i think only four times addressed the nation other than at christmas so there's an annual um address at christmas which is fantastic uh, you know i often think it's one of the most important religious things that happens in our country she almost always takes a gospel story and says something about it so she's she's a supreme governor of the church but also one of our great lay preachers um and but so very unusually and only in times of crisis does she address the nation outside of that and if you haven't seen her address which was i think on palm sunday i just recommend that viewers have a look at it and i think many people will find it quite difficult to Listen, listen to it or watch it without a, a tear in their eye because it was just absolutely pitched perfect and it, she drew on her experience of uh, serving in the second world war so she um she was a motor mechanic during the second world war and uh, it was just be it was beautiful it was human um it was everything that the monarchy can be uh, like, there have been stony-hearted french republicans have been writing newspaper articles about um <laughs> about how um how fortunate we are, and I absolutely agree. Yeah, so, and then Rowan Williams, uh, he was on Newsnight, which is the sort of flagship BBC One news programme, immediately after Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, who had, had given his address to the nation, saying, we really need to, we need to stay in now. It was wonderful. It was the most fantastic example 
of the validity of what I would think of as the virtue approach to ethics and, and more widely to education. Here was a man who could only do what he did in those six minutes because of a lifetime of formation of what he's read, but also of his way of life and his pattern of devotion and of, you know, asceticism and relationships. And so it was just, it was, it was a lifetime of formation. And if I would say, if the only thing he'd done was those six minutes to come out of that, then it would be a life of great productivity because he had the things to say to a nation in crisis with enormous authority and humanity and humility. Of course, he's also written incredibly large number of important books and so on and will go on to do so but I will tell the story when I'm teaching virtue ethics in future of, of a bishop who was able to say what was needed in that moment because of a lifetime of preparation and I, again I'm sure it's available on on um, Newsnight uh, on, on, this Newsnight clip will be available on YouTube and so on and there's such a sense of relish from the presenter because here's someone who knows what he's talking about not afraid to say difficult things and it was just a wonderful exchange. I, I thoroughly recommend it. And there's something very endearing about it because he'd set up this makeshift recording um, studio in his house, which basically involved uh, draping sh sheets um, in, in the background. So there was this, this wonderful incongruence um, between the setting and this, you know, like one, one of our great, one of the world's great public intellectuals uh, speaking from the corner of a room with sheets, sheets draped around. Maybe as a final question, just to talk a bit about, so you're still working on your big project on astrobiology and on how this thinking about, you know, life uh, elsewhere in the universe might change or influence our theological reflection. What do you see as uh, future projects for yourself? And what do you see perhaps in that regard as promising emerging areas in theology that should be explored? Well, I know some of the list of things that I've got stacked up to want to write about. One of them is to go back to my PhD thesis, which was on the, the nature of finitude. So I quite like one, one word categories, mm. like one word titles for books. Unfortunately, CUP wouldn't let me call this book participation. It had to be participation in God. But um, so finitude, what does it mean to be finite? Kind of, uh, these categories that are in the background that we perhaps let be too determinative or we, we assume that we think we know what they mean. And actually there are disparate and sometimes rival accounts of what it means. So with finitude, I think there's a quite a, a tragic vision of finitude that sees it as curtailment and it's associated with the sin, with sin, perhaps the unfallenness. But I wanted to highlight an, another tradition of thinking about finitude, which is about the things that can only really be perfect according to, be, according to being the kind of particular things that they are. There's quite a, a, a stream of writing, for instance, in aesthetics about how it's only with respect to limitations that you can really be creative. Um, and also quite a lot of writing about finitude that thinks about it as being beginnings and especially ends, so associates it with death. And I was wanting to retrieve an account of finitude, which is about the particularity of things. So the, the appleness of the apple and the orangeness of the orange, and not just the fact that they're both going to rot. Uh, so I want to uh, scoop up that. And then I, I see that as being a, a three-part project, so the participation, Finitude, and the other thing I want to write about is mediation. So, what does it mean for one thing to be perceived through or to act through another? Because that seems to me important for all sorts of theological questions. And it's certainly really, uh, I think I'm quite a mediatory sort of thinker. And I look forward to turning to that. And I like to have something quite 
particular and scientific on the go and something more, I suppose, abstract, although these things are never really abstract um, and philosophical. So I, I see the mediation work probably going alongside further work on the extended evolutionary synthesis. And I'm also quite keen to do some work on theology and engineering because that seems like a, an interaction that has not been very much attended to. So we talk quite a lot about technology, I suppose, theology and technology, but engineering which is often quite about problem solving. It's kind of less grandiose and abstract than, than technology as a subject. It's just making stuff and solving problems. And I don't think that's received the theological attention that it might do. My father's an engineer, so I think that's partly uh, coming out of that. And also there's a wonderful, um, many wonderful people in, in the university here in Cambridge, but one that I've had quite a lot to do with is the professor of engineering and the environment, Julian Allwood, partly to do with his climate change work. So he works a lot on the idea that we need basically to make less stuff. We need to make less stuff and make it last longer because that has such a impact on, on carbon emissions. And he's done some innovative, very interdisciplinary work, um, partly through the transactions of the Royal Society. And I think he'd be, he's, he's interested in the religious and theological aspects alongside economics and you know, really, really, he wants to bring every voice to the table that he can. And I, I hope I get the chance to um, do some work on thinking theologically about engineering, not least in his company. Well, Andrew Davison, it was great to touch base, to see where your work's going and to see how you're doing during this crisis and to talk with you about how to think about it theologically. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.